0: to the groundswell podcast produced by faith first with so much division in our world right now we want to give people a resource to help us navigate the divisiveness we believe there's a better way to live that allows us to not get caught up in division we believe that when we put our faith first and divisive topics second we can cross over divides to build unity and understanding with those around us we hope you enjoy today's podcast and that you'll keep coming back for more live faith first Welcome to the Groundswell Podcast. I'm Elliot Sands, Executive Director of Live Faith First, and I'm with Michael Rhodes, who is a lecturer at Carey Baptist College in Auckland, New Zealand, and the author of multiple books, including Just Discipleship, which we're going to talk about today, which takes an in-depth look at biblical justice in an unjust world. So, Michael, thank you for joining us
1: today. Elliot, it's a real privilege to be with you, and yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And we are halfway around the world apart. Even though you sound like you know you're 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 from North America, yes. You Hear a little little maybe Southern accent there. So, but um, you're from right now. You are not in the U.S.
1: Yes, that's right. I'm not in Kansas anymore, or in my case, Memphis anymore. Um, my I've, I've spent almost all of my life in Memphis, Tennessee, where I was born and raised. Um, except for a couple of years in Kenya and some years at university. Um, but for the last year and a half, my family of six has been living in Auckland, New Zealand, where I teach Old Testament at Carey Baptist College. Wow.
0: Wow. How, curious, how did you end up in New Zealand? Uh, there's a lot of seminaries in North America. How did you end up in uh, in New Zealand? Just really
1: passionate about the hobbits, man. <laughs> Perfect. No, the truth is, the truth is um, while I was working my, on my PhD, I, I sort of envisioned myself moving into church work um, and trying to keep the academic thing as a, an aspect of my life on the side. Um, and I actually applied to carry, uh, I I was in a job, and I kind of had a freak-out moment, and I thought, I need to do some practice interviews to get ready for the next thing. And I didn't mm. know this at the time, but in January when I was looking, North American schools hire in the fall. And so there was, globally, there was like three Old Testament jobs on Earth. And one of them was at Cary Baptist College in Auckland, New Zealand. So I applied as a practice. I sent the world's worst cover letter. I had no intention of taking the job. And in the first interview, I fell in love with the place. Um, Cary is a deeply evangelical place in, in the best sense of the word, but cares deeply about poverty, about mission, about indigenous issues, which are new to me. Yeah. Um, shamefully new to me. So it just, I quickly realized like this was going to be a really remarkable place. So Next God step. closed doors and open doors and all of a sudden, you know, and here you, I am you, with my I, Southern drawl and the hobbits, you know,
0: <laughs> In Auckland. that's so awesome. And you are married and have four kids. Yeah, Is that My married?
1: wife, Rebecca and four kids, uh, Isaiah, Amos, Nova, and Jubilee who are 11 down through six. Wow. All right. Well, that
0: is an amazing thing to pick up your family, move halfway around the world. Uh, <laughs> my my parents did that when I was fourteen, mm. but they were bringing a, I think a, my da- my sister was three, oh my to three to fourteen year olds, and took us to Nigeria, West Africa. So, wow. um, um, proud that you did it. It's not an easy thing for a parent to decide to. Let's just go. You know, we're used yeah. to Memphis. Yeah. Let's, go to, let's go to the land of the hobbits. That is great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, now, you wrote a book about just discipleship. That is the title of the book. Mm. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it is it's theological, it's also practical and additionally accessible. Uh, mm. Now those three things don't often go together. Sometimes practical, uh, but not theological or sometimes theological and then that's it. Um, so I love that. One of the things you spent some time talking about is righteousness and justice and how those two words go together. So can you start by just defining righteousness and justice and kind of the
1: biblical just uh, definition of those two words? Yeah. The yeah, well, first thing I want to say is it is actually hard to define righteousness and justice, especially when they show up as a word pair. In the Old Testament so they're often right next to each other righteousness and justice or they're parallel in the Psalms and the prophetic literature so they have a lot of overlap and they are um, sort of macro co- concepts like wisdom is it would be another Old Testament concept it's like hard to pin down it can mean everything from like the skill you need to build a tent to like the whole way you orient yourself to God so justice and righteousness have that same kind of overlap um, what's weird is I think in the face of that uh, difficulty, a lot of Christians when they talk about justice, they just defer to what we mean by justice in the world. And I don't just mean that in like a contemporary, like if you look at a lot of books on justice, they start with render to each person what they are due, Mm -hmm. which is a a sort of ancient uh, kind of Greco-Roman idea, Um, which not that that's totally wrong, but in the book, what I try to show is the best way to look at, to understand what justice and righteousness is, is to look at what justice, justice and righteousness do. Mm-hmm. And one really clear place we see that is in the book of Job, who God has said is, you know, the, the best guy on the block. And he tells us in Job 29 that when he clothed himself in justice and righteousness. He um, he caused the widow's heart to sing. He accompanied the dying. He took in the orphan. He went to court with the immigrant. He cared for the disabled. Uh, the poor, he, he cared for. And he smashed yes. the fangs of the wicked and snatched their victims from their teeth. Yes. Now that's, that's what justice and righteousness looks like in the world. Yes. Um, and so I think um, if you want to try to summarize what that is, my two shorthands, which I borrow, one is from John Golden Gay uh, Justice and Righteousness is about the faithful exercise of power in community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty close. Um, or Cornel West, the black philosopher, says uh, Justice is what love looks like in public, not just an abstract concept to guide our institutions, but a fire in our bones to promote the well being of all. Wow. It's a lovely statement. And I think that captures it. Now, even then you might want to say more because in the Bible you don't just have just people, you have just markets and just laws and yeah. just yeah. so there's a structural dimension. There's a creational dimension. You know, so there's lots going on with this concept. But I, I think those ideas of the faithful exercise of power are a good place to start. Yeah. And what's interesting is you get those two words in the in the Old Testament. When you move into the New Testament, yeah, 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 the word that we often translate righteousness actually holds together aspects of what we mean by justice and what we mean by righteousness. And and you can see this in in the language because if you get the noun form of the word, it's often translated righteousness, although sometimes it's translated justice. But when you get the verb form of the Greek word in the New Testament, it's it's the word used for justification. Which is a, a hmm. legal justice metaphor. So, you get two words in the Old Testament that overlap a lot, In the New Testament you kind of get not this. Is, it's a little bit more complex than this. But you kind of get one word <laughs> that includes concepts from both. Well, yeah. So, so, w- so the problem is when we think righteousness, we think like personal piety. Yes. And we, we when we think justice, we think courtrooms, and and this misleads us in the Old and New Testament because. Yeah. Because there's this kind of big idea that we're supposed to be faithfully exercising all that we are and all that his, God has given us on behalf of others, yeah. faithfully in line with his way. And that's what justice and righteousness is all about.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love the way that gets broken up. And I think it does get challenging in the New Testament, right? When when mm. we're looking at one word to describe two things and we don't describe them simultaneously, right? And and so. Yes. I think that's why when I've read through the Bible and I see righteousness and justice, and you see the concept of clothing yourself in and some of those things mm. like that—that's a concept you, you see. But as you said, righteousness is so much like, well, I'm going to live right, I'm going to act right, I'm I, you know I'm going to treat my family right, that type of thing, and then mm. justice is something all together and you either th- think of a, a Bob Marley song or, you know, <laughs> a, a song, you know, son- something you write on a sign that a protest, right? Justice yeah. for all. Um, and those are, those are pieces of it, right? Yes. But that's not the entirety of it. And I, I love when you pull out Job, that idea that it was very
1: individual. There was a widow that was involved, right? Yes. That was a, yes. you know, a person. Yes. And, and that's, I think, um, Uh, One of the mistakes I think we make, and I know that in um, this ministry that you help lead, Elliot, you're trying to get people to dialogue across divides. And one thing I wish people would see is that for some of our Christian camps, um, justice is all personal. You know, it's all individual. It's all about what I do. And that co- completely misses the structural, corporate, community, and even creational side to justice. That you have just courts, that you have just laws, you have just marketplaces, or unjust yeah. courts, laws, marketplaces. Yeah. And then on the other side, we can think that justice is all structure, right? Yeah, and right. miss the fact that um, uh, each of us is got the ability to faithfully exercise what we've been given in line with God's way, and to care for those who are suffering. That's another interesting thing about that Job passage. You know, justice render each their due, or like, you know, we think justice like equality before the law. But when the Old Testament talks about justice, in that passage at least, you get nine descriptors of suffering groups in six verses. So as soon as the Bible starts talking about justice, it starts about the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, you know.
0: Yeah. The disabled.
1: Yeah. Um so so yeah, I think I think a lot of us in our justice talk um, uh, separate what God we, we set asunder what God has united, you know? Yeah. yeah. You got my mind
0: like thinking on like twelve different things right now, and you know a lot of it is around we've become so isolated in society and yet justice is so communal. Mm. Yeah. Um, right? That idea that that first off, I can get very isolated in my own home. Mm. I can also get isolated in my own community because often your community can look and sound and feel just like you. Yes, that's right. So we, and then the neighborhoods that maybe aren't the ones we want to associate with are the ones we drive around, uh, we avoid and, and, and so on. And so can you talk maybe a little bit more about kind of how do we do a better job of exposing ourselves because also I know that when I become aware of something number one I now feel responsibility <laughs> like mm. oh I think maybe I should do something about this but also I become more compassionate towards those around me and so mm. given a little idea of like well how do we get ourselves exposed to justice issues what does that what does yeah. that look like and
1: yeah yeah, well, I'd say two things that I talk about in the book that are, are, are I think, deeply in the biblical text, um, but also deeply tied to my experience. So one is just my personal community story, um, which I tell a little bit in the book. It's, I was raised in this like church that I love, like I, I really love. They, they, they raised me to believe that the good life was found only in Jesus and in a life submitted to His Lordship, and that the way you discovered what such a life looked like was in Scripture. And those are my primary convictions to this day, right? That's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And um, it really was beautiful, a beautiful church community. Um, I'm 37, so I was born in 1985. In the 1950s, that same church that taught me those things had an explicitly racially segregated policy, mm-hmm. such that when black and white college students tried to attend the church together in the 50s, they were barred from the door. Now this is during the Civil Rights Movement, and so there were the bus-ins and the sit-ins, but what a lot of people don't know, and Stephen Haynes has written a, a really good book about this in Memphis, is the kneel-ins, where Christians mm-hmm. tried to attend church together and were refused entrance at segregated Southern churches. and Um, The church that I was at was a large, prominent Presbyterian church, and so it made national news. It split over the issue. The congregation that I was raised in was the congregation that had some sense that we'd screwed up, right? (laughs) So in the 80s and 90s, when I was raised, I'd like to say our congregation was in recovery. We were like at the second meeting of Racist Anonymous, you know. Hi, our name is so-and-so, and and we've got a race problem. (laughs) And we were also one of the most affluent church communities Hmm. in a city that is deeply, one of the poorest cities in the the country, economically speaking. Hmm. So where this ends for me, where my life sort of take a different route, you know, you kind of get raised like um, uh, Jesus, his word, but our church had the courage in their journey of recovery from racism to bring in guys like Dr. John Perkins, Hmm. who was black is a black uh, evangelical leader, the founder of Christian community development, um, just massively important figure. But he came in, last time I heard him speak at this church, he quoted the Bible something like 20 times, 27 times in 17 minutes or something like that. So he just came in and opened the Bible and said, okay, you love Jesus, great. You love the Bible, great. Look at all this stuff it says in here, you know? And, and that's what changed my life. And, and that's why I studied community development in, at university. That's why we went to Kenya and got involved with poverty ministry. That's why we came back to Memphis and, and moved into um, an extremely economically poor community. Um, and we're raising our kids there. And that's why when we've come to Auckland now, again, um, while I work at a theological college, um, we are part of a, a Christian uh, group in um, uh, a very economically poor neighborhood here in Auckland as well. And my wife, Rebecca, is doing a lot of work um, alongside that that movement and, and ministry. And mm-hmm. so I say all that to say, um, Christians believe that God speaks to us in his word. Mm-hmm. And one deeply problematic thing evangelicals have sometimes done with that is say, so I don't need anybody to help me hear it. And I certainly don't. Need anybody to help me who doesn't look like me or has different experiences because they're probably just fill in the blank in sheep's clothing, you know. Right. And right. so, my story is I was surrounded by people who really did love Jesus, really loved His Word, but because we were all from the same ethnic group and from the all from the same economic mm-hmm. class, we were just missing stuff. So I think we have got to listen to people who are different from us. Guys like Perkins literally changed my life um and and it was because of 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 their ability to see things in scripture and in the gospel that i hadn't seen so that's one thing i'll maybe i'll just pause there in case you want to say anything about that Elliot. and do do have one other idea yeah first thing about
0: no i i love that concept i think it it's so as we've kind of been saying already we get so caught up in our own stream of thinking and Mm. you've really taken a question that i had here was like how do we do better at putting spotlights on areas where we're blind to them we started talking about righteousness and justice i see righteousness and i see it disconnected from from justice like that's just Mm. how my historical reading of the bible has been i get righteousness Mm. justice on the other hand looks a little different and so um I'd, I'd love you to finish your second thought. Yeah, <laughs> but I do have a question that I want to ask. Like, are there other ways we do better at highlighting things that blind spots that we might be having because
1: of you know the the, the culture that we're in and we're learning our Bible in and, and so on? Yeah. So I think the first thing for any like if you're a Christian, you're like, man, I'm surrounded by people by, by people who think like me. The first easiest step is to listen to Christians from other communities. Um, with some similar convictions about God and His Word, but who might have completely different perspectives on, on, than you on what that looks like.
0: Yeah.
1: And for the easiest way to do that first is like, you know, books and podcasts and, you know, all the stuff that we do when we're learning things. But um, in two chapters in the book, I really look at how this plays out in the church. And so one thing um, that really, really bothers me is that when we talk about care for the poor, for instance, most American churches that are in, in sort of economically, um, that, that have some economic power, will often talk about our church needs to help the poor. And what you've subtly done in that sentence is create two groups one that's the church and one that's the poor. And the implication can be that they are not here, right? And so one thing I like to do when I open up Scripture is just to point out that in the Bible, and I think this runs all the way through, the people of God's first solution, not their only, but their first response to economic poverty is that the community of God is a place where everyone can belong. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy, you have these phenomenal economic justice laws. You know, every third year you put your, your tithe in the city gate and it's food aid for orphans and widows and immigrants. And nobody in the ancient world was doing that. That's completely revolutionary. You know, required ba- functionally religious taxes for the poor. That's not happening anywhere, right? Um, Deuteronomy 15. Uh, Every seven years, uh, you declare the Lord's Sabbath, and people who owe you money, their debts are forgiven. But you can't not lend them money. You have to lend them money, uh, and you can't take interest, and then you have to forgive debts. And if someone's life falls apart, and so they're basically an indentured servant in your household in in the seventh year, you send them out. And these are all very countercultural. But what's amazing is to look at what comes just before these three economic justice structures. Because what comes before all that is a meal. So in Deuteronomy 14:22 22 through 27, what you're told is on normal years, you bring your full tithe to the Lord's sanctuary and you eat it. You feast on it. And God is so excited about this that he gives you some ideas. He says, if you want to sell your tithe in the village and bring the cash to the sanctuary, you can get whatever you want. Wine, strong drink, beef, you know, revise, whatever you want. You want anything you want on the menu. Here's the requirement. And, and why is God doing this? It's because he wants you to see that he's a generous king. So he mm-hmm. takes everything that mm-hmm. you owe him and he gives it straight back. He wants you to, to taste and see that he is good. Literally, like on your tongue and yeah. in your belly. But, while God says you can eat whatever you want, the one requirement is to eat by household. And in Deuteronomy, the household includes the orphan and the widow and the immigrant and the refugee and the landless Levite. So the idea is, you feast together, you become family in the community, and having become family in the community, you then figure out how the family eats all year long. So the first thing is to figure out, okay, if I'm in a sort of homogenous group of Christians, I'm just going to have to go out and find voices. But the second thing is that historically there are no um, solely upper class faith communities in the Bible. There are no solely upper middle class faith communities. The the poor have always found a place. And, And it's actually really hard work for that not to be like paternalistic, for them to be kind of over there in the corner, for them to be like fully vested So I talk about that a good bit in relation to both Deuteronomy and the church in Corinth in the book. Um, But that's a vision so that um, when we talk about Jesus, like, visually the people in the room begin to shape that conversation. You know? Like, when you... It's hard to read Blessed are the poor in Luke and go, oh, but Matthew says it's just spiritual. If you know that you know, Auntie Jane in the corners, lights got cut off, right? Right. Right. Um, So I think becoming communities where this is happening is is, is really important.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and our, our,
0: the way our society in the U.S. has been set up where it is very divided by Mm. neighborhoods and communities and zip codes and all of the things that it is. Um, I, I, this is what was rolling through my brain as I was reading your book. Like, well, that kind of, that would make sense in a society where in a community, I would see and interact with yes. all stratas of the society, whether that's ethnic, whether that's socioeconomic, whatever that is, they would be in fairly close proximity because these yes. villages are not big. No. They're not, they're yeah, not these right. massive sprawling things like we have yeah. in the U S yes. And as I've already said, I can avoid any neighborhood I want to. There is a street yeah. around any neighborhood, good or bad, yeah. I can avoid it. Yeah, right? That's
1: right. that's right.
0: And so it becomes, I think, a, a bigger challenge to have compassion because of our just lack of exposure yes. and awareness. That's right. And, and I, I do definitely want to talk about some of the, the ethnic disparities that we see in our community, but here in San Jose, we're... Where I live, I, I live on South 13th Street, and yep. South 11th is very different. Mm. And South 16th is very yes. different. Now, when I drive into my neighborhood, I see houses,
1: mm.
0: and I don't have any idea what's going on behind those doors. Yeah, all yep. I see is a door, and yep. you know the paint may be a little more run down than in on my street. Um. Mm. Or, or, or you know, there might be an extra car or two, and maybe one of them's parked on the lawn. But besides that, I can yeah. still figure. I bet everything's fine in that home. Yeah. Because I don't go behind that door in yeah. that home to know. Oh my goodness, there's yeah. four families living here. Oh my yeah. goodness, how many kids? How many jobs does it take to pay the rent here, by just working? You know, working yeah. class kind of people living in in a house in yeah. downtown San Jose. And so I'm challenged as we talk about this to know, like, yeah. how do I become aware? How do I get behind that door to go, wow, this is a plight of somebody who lives two blocks from me?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. This coming Just before I like start to address that, there's two things that rang for me when you're talking. One is, you're right, the villages are small. And then, I mean, scholars are really, like, I think in strong agreement on the basic outline of this that in the New Testament, I mean, over half of society is grindingly poor. Mm. You know, you've got Mm. twenty or thirty people who are twenty, thirty percent of the people who are slowly starving. You know, basically, and then another thirty or forty or whatever. I'm not looking at the numbers, but it's it's crazy. So you think about who is the church? Nobody is as rich as a working class, middle class person in America. Right? we are the pharaohs of the ancient world all of us pretty much um, but certainly the majority of people are facing grinding you know, yeah. poverty, yeah. so you're absolutely right and you can't drive in and out you know. Um, right. <laughs> the other thing I thought of is you know, for, so from my experience um, you know, Dr. Perkins, one of his big things was, if is, one of his things is, um, if you feel called to, to serve a community you should consider living in that community yeah. Uh, whether that means you were raised in that community and people want to leave but you decide to stay or you go and come back or you might be an outsider like me and so um, so that's been kind of a, a part of Rebecca and I's ministry philosophy for our calling I will and warn you folks if you try
0: to do this you will find yourself doing things you never imagined you would do <laughs> and starting things and being involved in stuff that never would have been on your radar and only yeah. because you become exposed to it so yeah that's anyway. right
1: and and i think what you said what i would add to like you don't know what's going on behind the door man that is so true also in our experience like i didn't understand for instance um how slum lording worked mm. and that there are an awful lot of people and, and there'd be an awful lot of middle-class people who have Slum houses, perhaps even in their investment portfolio, not know it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea. Like, we had a woman who was living in a slum house, no heat through the winter, which it, it does get cold in Memphis, uh, no electricity. She had one or two functional receptacles in the place. She's paying rent every month. Uh, we took her slumlord to court with a lawyer from our church and we lost. Like, I had no idea. How structurally stacked, in some cases, the system is towards owners and against tenants. And, and I also just want to say, um, like I can tell stories about the police officer in our, in our neighborhood who saw the kid with the plastic toy gun and brought him around to our house and said, do you know where this kid's mom is? Because he is putting his life on the line mm-hmm. and was very kind and compassionate to that kid. But I also saw police officers talk over their loudspeakers at men on the street in ways that they would never have talked to anybody in the mm-hmm. neighborhood I grew up in. So you begin to get a glimpse, not only of the individual, but the sort of structural stuff that's going on, it's just just completely hidden. I didn't know what working poverty looks like. You know? So you get in this stuff and, and 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 universally wherever you kind of fall in the political divide, it's exactly what you said. You get close to it and you start having to, you know, rethink things. Um, and so, and, and I do want to say, one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, we talk a lot about racial segregation in our society, and particularly in the South, and, and it's because it's awful. But what a lot of people ignore is class segregation. Yeah. And I pull in some research pretty broadly suggesting that American society in every area of life is more class segregated today than it was in 1970. Mm-hmm. So over the last what is that, 50 years it's becoming less and less likely that middle class, affluent and low income people mix yeah. in their neighborhoods in their schools in their workplaces uh, and some evidence in their churches and what that yeah. means is society there it, 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 it doesn't have to be like this is, you don't. You not have to be conspiracy theory about this. This is not a Illuminati story. I'm not talking about necessarily guys sitting around board. It just is a fact that the there are are structural forces in our society, especially around the housing market, and housing market's relationship to schools, and some of the history there that is quite racist. But that basically means there's, um. Uh, the river flows downstream, and if you go with the flow. You get sorted by class in every area of life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, if the Bible's first defense is a community of and among the people across lines of race and class, then it's going to take an awful lot of work to swim up that stream. Yeah. And a lot of Christians just are just. That you know, because they haven't had these experiences, they don't see that, and so they don't see the complexity. They don't see resisting that stream as as necessary for Christian mission um, and discipleship. As a result, we just keep getting sorted, and so we keep, you know, frankly, um, having our vision narrowed to our own class and often ethnic kind of perspectives. Yeah, yeah, and. Well, uh, you had a couple stats in your
0: in your book, and, and I, I actually want to m- move towards what does imitating Jesus look like, but mm. that were amazing to me how the perception of a particular subject, how different it was between the African-American community and the yeah. white Christian community. And I, I don't have those stats in front of me, but kind of on all level, levels, whether it's policing or opportunity or housing, yes. and those types of things, <clears throat> They were just viewed very differently, and and I yes. think understandably so, because if you're sitting on the, the the white middle class side, and I'm pointing at myself if you're listening to this, um, yeah, without being exposed to it, well, it's probably good enough for everybody. I mean, I had opportunity. Yeah. Everybody else yes. probably does too.
1: Yes, and it's and it's really hard because um, uh, some American Christians. Are, have hyper-focused on, on the deeply personal nature mm. of the gospel. And that, you know, Jesus died for my sins. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Um, but the way the Bible tells the story is that my story of salvation is caught up in Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, and he is reclaiming all that is his, and he is making all things new. And so we often miss that kind of, that kind of corporate dynamic and so with our hyper-individualized focus, we miss things. So, like, if I tell you the story of my family, you know, I can tell you stories about how my grandfather, you know, was on a on a Navy ship during World War II and didn't like the job that he was given, so taught himself to type, and then he used the VA bill to, like, get go to college and get a loan to start a business and bootstrap this business with help from you know, and then and 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 all this stuff, and and buy a home um, in Memphis with um, with uh, uh, government uh, FHA-backed mortgages. And in that story, my grandfather really did work his rear end off. Taught my dad to work his yeah. rear end off, and so I, in my own. Uh, dodgy millennial way have my version of, of work in my rear end that I've inherited you know That, that story, that's a true story yeah but what's obscured is that the black guys on that boat with my granddad were denied college through the VA bill they were denied the loans by the VA bill Gee, they were excluded from reasonable mortgages and, and forced through redlining into predatory uh, loans, and so, like my neighborhood, the neighborhood that I lived in for twelve years, was a a, a the best neighborhood, um, the best neighborhood for middle class Black people in the city, hmm. in the twentieth century. And structural, racially driven uh, politics turned it into a slum. So it was the third poorest third poorest zip code in the country by nineteen ninety nine. It went from the best neighborhood for middle class blacks to one of the worst neighborhoods for anybody, economically speaking, in ninety years, and that happened. And I, if we had time, I could show you the moves yeah. because of racist politics. And and so, you know, I I value my heritage, right? But my yeah. neighbor's experience is so different. And and if we're not, you know, running into that, um, we're just you're just not going to see what we don't see.
0: You right. Know? Right right no it's absolutely right and and uh it's still happening in 2023 that's it, right it uh that's right it, it it changes some it maybe looks a little bit different i know you know redlining has gone away and some of those things but i still hear stories just a couple of months ago about yeah housing and and who's being allowed to move into a particular new neighborhood and that's right and who somehow is not and yeah. um I, I heard the story and I, you i you, you you have to ask the question how is that possible and yet it is possible and it is still happening and and i i think part of as we learn these things what does our responsibility become to help alleviate yeah that's right to help eliminate and i i, I think that's part of the challenge of all of this is when we mm. talk about how we step into whether it's poverty or ethnic um, divides and those types of things. I grew up in a church that we were not a political, and by political I mean involved in local government, involved in. I mean, you would say, hey, here's, here's who we should be voting for, that type of thing, but actual legislation and so on. And yet the more you get involved and hear things, the more you tend to have to move that direction, where you find yourself in Washington, D.C., you find yourself in Sacramento's uh, capital of California, in Sacramento, or you find yourself at City Hall because you realize there are injustices and that there mm. are ways that they can be changed. There, there yeah, actually right. are, you know, we have the benefit in our society of, of, of advocating and making adjustment to lots and yeah that's right not a lot of societies currently and or historically had that opportunity
1: yeah and so um that's right and and I, I in the book one thing i do is i do a close look at daniel and i want to say this because i think this is important in our political moment you know daniel's a guy who finds himself uh in the cabinet of nebuchadnezzar you know and is true if you read daniel one through four He and his buddies are trying to work out. uh, To what extent can they collaborate, and to what extent do they have to resist? Now, in Daniel four, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream where he's like, "God's like, I'm going to turn you into a beast because you're acting like one," you know, and and Daniel says, "Okay, here's my advice: Uh, break off your sins in righteousness, and atone for your iniquities by deeds of mercy to the oppressed." Again, this is justice language, right? Yeah. And and there's two things that's that's striking about this. Uh, One is Daniel is not talking to the church. He's not talking to Israel. He's talking to a pagan government that he has deep, deep disagreements with. And his message is justice for the poor, right? Righteousness to the Mm -hmm. oppressed. And what's even more astounding about this is that the narrator, this is the kind of thing that Bible nerds freak out about, three times in this chapter we're told, three times, it means it's important, that Nebuchadnezzar's problem is that he has not recognized the sovereignty of God. The problem is that Nebuchadnezzar has set himself above the sovereignty of God. He has not recognized the sovereignty Three times. So why is Daniel, in the face of Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous arrogance, say that care for the poor is the solution. And the obvious answer is that Daniel has learned from Scripture that the way leaders acknowledge God's sovereignty as king is by reflecting some of the sovereign king's priorities. And for Daniel, justice and righteousness for the poor is at the center of that program. So this thing of all care for the poor is the church's work, that is just not borne out in Scripture. Like I've just given you the chapter and verse, stop saying it. There are different ways that we care for the poor when we're in our local churches than when we engage politically. And bear in mind that Daniel criticizes like crazy Nebuchadnezzar. So even the people he works for, even the party that he collaborates with, let the reader understand, You know, even the politicians that he campaigns for or whatever, he is deeply critical of them in public. So that he's never just working for the man you know it's always it's always constructive critical it's critical collaboration but but this idea that all oh, that's the church's work simply right. and the government should never that just is it's just if if you believe that i want your audience to know they got those ideas from somewhere outside the bible because when we see god's people in power at least on a few occasions Amid the nations, what they do is they seek justice for the poor. That's part of their program. Yeah. right? So I think there's something really important. It is when we go, ooh, I don't want my local church endorsing a candidate. Me neither. right? Like There right. is something problem, deeply problematic about that because yeah. the church's primary political commitment is to be an outpost under King Jesus. And we cannot conflate that. And so Daniel has to know every kingdom that he collaborates with will one day be smashed by the mountain that is cut out by no human hands which is the kingdom of god that's the fate of all of them they might be gold they might be iron they might be clay they all get smashed daniel has to be like deeply aware of that this kingdom is not the kingdom of god no matter what they have to know that so we don't want churches just endorsing candidates and But at the same time, God's people need to be equipped to faithfully exercise power in every sphere, and that includes the political. And so we have to disciple people as churches to go out and think critically and engage with these issues and collaborate and criticize and and et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think that's, I just think that, I, I think, I think I think those things, because I've been trying to read the Bible carefully alongside my yeah. neighbors in suffering places. Yeah. Not because I've bought into some alien agenda, but because this is the direction that scripture pushes us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And to move that into the New Testament, mm. when we look at Jesus and you talk a lot yes. about imitating Jesus. Yes. Um, mm. I uh, When I say I want to be like Jesus, you know what I think? I want to be yeah. better at fruit of the spirit maybe yeah. living out in the sermon on the mount yes. um you know get my own personal habits my own personal thought life my own get get me yeah. all righteous right yeah yeah and yet when you look at Jesus first sermon which of course you talk about right he mm. says he he literally reads scripture that says i'm 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 kind of the year of jubilee here i'm bringing yes. good news to the poor Yes, and then when you see who he interacts with, yes, yes. definitely with the Pharisees, de- yes, definitely with people who are in power. But so much of what he did was healing the sick, right? Feeding mm. hungry people, giving life to widows' children. Mm. And I, I'd like to just this is just my guess, but if Jesus were here today, based upon what I see in the New Testament, I think he'd be spending more times, more time in low income communities than he would be sitting in church buildings.
1: Well, what I find remarkable is he spends so much time with all the groups. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody has said, you know, in Luke, he says the most about the poor and he's also more with the wealthy than in any other gospel. So Luke must be telling us that Jesus is quite happy to draw people from every economic stratosphere, but he draws them together and he draws them to himself and then he says, "Now you're part of a family where you belong to each other because you belong to me." Yeah. And that has deep implications for the way that you care for one another. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You're exactly right. And the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the, you know, fruit of the Spirit, Sermon on the Mount. Amen to that. And those things will be good news for all people, but not least the poor. You know. Yes. Um, loving your enemy, forgiving debts. These are all things in the Sermon on the Mount. You know um yeah
0: yeah before i move to our final question um how where would you have people start i mean you you talk about moving into a neighborhood and that's great i think that's amazing but that is that's probably <laughs> yeah. not the first place they're gonna do let me let me uh sell my house and get an apartment yeah, yeah. um what would you suggest for helping us to kind of yeah. yeah step in on some of these things?
1: yeah So I think, so just to say a bit more of the book, most chapters are devoted to a conversation between the idea of discipleship, a portion of scripture, and a contemporary issue. And this idea that um, justice is about the faithful exercise of power, I think it really gives Christians the freedom to say, where am I? Where am I located? What's in my hands? You know. So in my chapter on um, Proverbs and justice, for instance, I talk, talk a lot about the relation between justice and wisdom, because um, the, the theologians of old suggest, and I think Proverbs agrees, that justice without wisdom, without street smarts, Without that kind of cagey sense of how to get things done, Mm -hmm. justice without wisdom is powerless. And wisdom without justice is predatory. And I talk about workplaces and wages in that chapter. And that comes out of my long experience trying to help um, people who are struggling to find work, good work. Mm -hmm. And working with a lot of business owners and business influencers Mm -hmm. to help their businesses become better places for struggling workers. Mm-hmm. And man, some of my heroes are in are among those people, like people I'm not fit to carry their shoes. So some of your audience needs to go, okay, I have a lot of influence, I understand the housing market, I understand the real estate market, I understand business. How can I bend that wisdom, that acumen, mm-hmm. uh, how can I exercise power in my company, in my business, or whatever it is, towards good news for the poor. By the way, Robbie Holt, Brian Ficker, and I wrote a whole book about this called Practicing the King's Economy, um, that's much more accessible than the book we're talking about today, so some people might be interested in that. We try to write both, hopefully they're both accessible. But, uh, uh, so so I think it's about looking at where you are. You know, when we were in Memphis, because of the shock to our system of living in this low-income community, Um, And we bought a house there and we were only able to do that in this under divested So in our community, the problem wasn't gentrification. The problem was divestment Mm. Houses weren't worth what it cost to build them the day they got finished being built and that creates all sorts of weirdness So the only way we were able to buy homes Mm. in our neighborhood was by leaning on family and friends and that kind of thing Um, And our neighbors obviously didn't have that right because the average black household has something like 1 11th the household wealth of the average white household in this country so We uh, bought a home, and some friends, bought a home, rehabbed it, rented it to a a dear friend over a year and some change, and every month we set aside 200 bucks for rent so that she could, that went towards the down payment. So she now owns that house. Hmm. To do that required a whole bunch of people who did not live in our neighborhood, who knew stuff that we did not know, to bend their lives towards us. I've taken slumlords to court, I've sent nasty legal letters to slumlords, that was always with lawyers who were willing to do stuff for free. So I think you've gotta, you got to kind of dig into God's Word, and hopefully the book helps with that, and and listen to the pain and the cry and the power of what's going on in some of our struggling communities. But then you're also going, what's in my hand, and how do I connect? And so you can build proximity to those who are suffering, not just through where you live, but in all sorts of ways. But you can also say, how do I bend my space in this direction? Some of us have... Uh, have a lot of political influence, have a lot of political... Clout. You know, I I, um, I heard a story um, um, about some conservative, uh, politically conservative position, polit- politicians, um, having their uh, position on the refugee program changed because some brothers and sisters in their denomination worked for World Relief, which is a Christian organization involved with refugee resettlement. And they quietly went to those politicians and said, let me tell you some stories about these refugees. And all of a sudden, these politicians backed off their kind of kill the refugee program, not in my backyard sort of thing. So we need to look at where we have influence and whatever. Now, I think if we try to use our influence without listening right. or building any kind of proximity, we fall into savior complexes and do-gooderism that goes off the rails. And I talked about that son. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a chapter in here on worship. So if you're a pastor or a worship leader, I think, I think there's something sick in the fact that the Psalms talk about the poor on almost every Psalm, certainly in every page. But if you look at the top 25 Christian contemporary worship songs coming out right now, uh, the poor are not anywhere. And that every every other Psalm is a "Where are you? Why? Are you, why did you? When will you?" The top 25 worship songs in 2022, anyways. Um, yeah. you know, if, you're, if you're just singing the hits The Hillsong hits and whatnot, um, The poor are not there And your worship never asks God any questions yeah. So my neighbor who just got kicked out of her house And shows up at your church on Sunday All she hears is You do great things, you do great things, you do great things You know right. um, and, and you are worshipping in a way that is deeply out of line With the way the Bible worships yeah. So you know, that's a place where Maybe you're a worship leader And you just think, man we're going to try to sing the way the Psalms do, you know? So I think there's lots of places to start. Yeah. Um, And that's, and that's the the exhilarating thing about being caught up in God's kingdom. You know, I don't do everything. I'm part of the body of Jesus, you know, and I'm connected to what God is doing in all these different ways. And, and, and our work is to discern together how collectively and individually we sacrificially love our neighbors um, and love our world.
0: Yeah. Um, That's good.
1: I will tell you if if you read this
0: book. Every chapter will leave you thinking about something. <laughs> leave you questioning. Wow! I mean, when I read the about the Psalms, right? And like, yeah. And then all of a sudden, my playlist, my morning, you know, Christian playlist. I'm like, yeah, no, no. I think now there's maybe one song that's asking yeah. God, what are you doing? You know, like, hey, yeah. God, why
1: did you let this happen to me? But it very yeah, quickly turns, should... right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I should say that if it, for those handful of readers are going well that's why we don't sing those ugly contemporary songs we've only got the hymnal yeah the research says your hymnal is bad at justice and lament as well I love those hymns that's my jam right. I love those hill song songs a lot of them but, right. but they just don't sound like the psalms do uh, and so there's an issue there you know yeah 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 no the
0: hymns still uh they they still give me goosebumps a lot of times when I hear yeah. it when my wife looks at me my wife didn't grow up in the church she's like you know the words to this <laughs> yes I know the words like how do yeah, you know that's that's the, that's the way the song's supposed to go because i used to have a book that i looked at that had yeah, notes right. in it <laughs> that's right yeah. so all right here's my last question for you what is exciting you right now what project what trend bible verse something that's happening in your family you know is there something that you're like oh man when i think about that i am encouraged
1: yeah i'll tell you so the thing i'm most excited about now is, is actually related to that psalms project um, or that psalms chapter so um When I was writing this thing, uh, this chapter on Psalms, um, one thing, I I started out the chapter on Psalms by noting this thing that people talk about sometimes called the slave Bible, which is this slave era Bible, uh, adaptation of the Bible for use among enslaved people, and so you look at what they cut out, right? And you can expect that they cut out the liberatory parts of Exodus, which they do. And you can expect that they cut out the neither Jew nor Greek like, which they do. But they also cut out the Psalms in its entirety. So I go, I just kind of start the chair and say, what is it about singing Psalms, you know, mm-hmm. that's a threat to um, the slave state? And, and I look at how much justice stuff there is in the Psalms and, um, and then kind of go from there. And, and as I was looking at contemporary worship, and I'm building on some of the stuff that like Soong Chan ra did on, in Prophetic Lament, which is just a fantastic, fantastic book on this subject, focused on lamentations rather than the Psalms. Um, I, I looked at these top twenty-five Christian Tippery worship songs that you can you know you can look up, and um, and I started sharing about that on Twitter. And 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 it, it's the only time people started have ever listened to me on Twitter as far as I can tell, which is fine. Uh, but anyways, that ended up I ended up writing something for Christianity Today. Why don't we sing the justice songs as a result? And so um, by the time, all all that to say, the reason why I tell the story is Justice Discipleship came out in August. But 18 months ago, um, when I arrived here in New Zealand, a lot of, the the first thing that a lot of my students or whatever had seen from me was the stuff about the Psalms. And so they were talking about it and we were talking about it. And so um, this next July, we are hosting a three-day conference where we are bringing in a couple international, internationally recognized psalm scholars uh, to spend three days with students, pastors, worship leaders, creatives, and academics. And we are going to gather around the psalms. Oh, wow. And then we are going to learn more deeply about um, the cultures and, and traditions of the communities that are here. And Aotearoa, New Zealand, that would include uh, the indigenous Maori people, but also um, there's more uh, Pacific Island folks in Auckland than almost anywhere in the world, Samoans, Tongans, Fijians, etc. So we're going to learn about those cultures and then we're going to have songwriters workshops where people are figuring out what would it look like to sing psalm-like songs in these cultural forms and mother tongues and etc. And how might that change the way we do pastoral care how might that change the way we do um, our preaching and teaching and our singing and praying yeah. and the most exciting bit of that for me is um right now our someone on our staff we're kind of doing we're preparing a presentation where we will have tried to go through the process ourselves in advance so i'm getting to meet occasionally with a guy from england a, a, a white woman from new zealand Uh, Samoan uh, migrant pastor um, uh, and uh, two Maori guys who grew up here um, and we're reading Psalm 77 which is this really crunchy like difficult hard-to-read lament psalm a big where are you why are you and we're starting to go what does it sound like in your culture and what would it feel Mm. like to sing this and 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 what does that mean and and um, it's just been so life-giving because it's been an opportunity in a way that I haven't experienced in this context at all, yeah. to gather around Scripture from different perspectives and say, what would it look like to proclaim mm. the good news of the triune God, mm. faithful to Scripture, mm. in this time and place? Yeah. And I, 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 um, I hope that there will be ways, I'm, I'm confident, there will be ways to share the results of that conference with the world. Yeah. Um, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's really what's got me fired up um, right now.
0: That's so good.
1: That's so good. I can't wait to hear more about that.
0: Psalms are very gritty, right? They are very gritty. Yeah. They, uh, they 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 don't pull any punches. They kind of so
1: true to life. You yeah. Know.
0: Call God out on stuff that you might otherwise not think appropriate, and uh, yes. um, and just it's it's real. I have one one psalm in particular, got me through a very, very, very difficult mm. time. And um, just, anyway, grateful that God put those right in the middle of the Bible. I'm just That's so grateful right. that he just put those right there.
1: Well, and, and and if your listeners are like me, and they genuinely believe that God co-authored every word of Genesis through Revelation, the miracle of the Psalms is that God co-authored Not just words to us, but words meant to be from us. So in the Psalms, God learns to speak our mother tongue to teach us how we might speak back to him. So I see the whole thing as language lessons for the life of faith. We get in these Psalms to shape us. They're like language training. You're learning. You're going through What does it, you know? And I remember um, I was teaching on the Psalms for a semester at Cary and, and, you know, I've had a really, really just rich, happy, good life, you know. So I, I like to talk about lament, but it, it's not it's not my, you know, sort of first mode. Um, I was on a run and all of a sudden I was just, I was listening to something in my headphones and something set me off and I was like shouting at God on my run through my neighborhood. I mean, we were just, I was like, I think you, and then I was like, and you were like, you know, it was just like, I was just venting. And, yeah, you know, I'm not much of a runner. By the time I got back 25 <laughs> minutes or 30 minutes into my house, I was kind of like, you know, Lord, you're good, your faithfulness, your steadfast love endures forever. You know, I'd come back to this place of praise, and I was in the shower, and I thought, I think I just play, pray a lament song. <laughs> not because I was looking at one, but because, like, they'd gotten in. The language lessons are yeah. starting to work. And yeah. so, yeah, I love that idea that, like, and, that, and we haven't talked about this as much, but th- this book that i 've written on just discipleship really is about discipleship, yeah, not that we should be just, but how do we become people who do justice, and that 's about discipleship that's about becoming like jesus that that gets me excited, you know yeah. Yeah. and um yeah. and I'm excited that God is patient with us and kind and in that journey that he that he works by the spirit,
0: yeah, absolutely I agree and yeah, I had several questions around discipleship. Obviously it's the title of the book, but just that idea <laughs> that this is a growing learning thing. It's not something yes. that's zapped into us. It's something that we we grow and we get stretched in and it it, yes. it is a it is a, a massive thing. And um so maybe, maybe we'll bring you back on and we'll just sit on talk nothing about discipleship and what this actually looks like, even though I think Everything we've talked about today has really been discipleship. I don't think we've just, we just haven't called it out as such, right? It's about how do we yes. need to grow and to learn and to move into these arenas that might stretch us, but we know that there are like so many other areas that God is calling us to it, and yet it's grinding gears in us. So whether it's our thought life yes. or our word life or, 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 or the way we treat other people, all of that is part of our Our trust in God and his provision, like all of those are part of the discipleship. Yes. And justice is another facet of that discipleship that we need to, yes. we need to get done. We need to get done. Yeah,
1: and can I just make a comment about that, Elliot? Um, you know, the good news of God's grace is that by the spirit, Jesus writes the new covenant on our hearts. So mm-hmm. we are given mm-hmm. new hearts. Mm-hmm. And those new hearts beat justice with God's just heart. And the good news of the gospel is that we've been invited to work out how to walk in step with the Spirit, how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, how to proactively offer our bodies as instruments of righteousness, yes, instruments of justice. And so Mm -hmm. it's the Spirit's work that gives the initial gift, And it's the Spirit's work that works in us and through us as we labor towards what God wants us to be. And all of that is gospel good news that flows out of our life with Christ. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate you uh, joining our podcast, being here. There's so much stuff. So first off, y'all go get the book. And journey through it. You will enjoy every <laughs> single chapter. They will make you think. You will, I, I, Hours later, it's still rolling through my head. Next day, man, wow, what are the implications of that? How do we do this? So, <laughs> thank you for writing the That's book and bringing kind, that really. to us. Thank you for joining our podcast today. Hey, everybody, let's go out today and live faith first. Hey, thanks for listening to our Groundswell podcast. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Views help other people find us, and we're trying to get the word out. We would love it if you would also share this episode on your social or your favorite text chain. Make sure to check out our weekly Groundswell videos at our YouTube channel. We make it easy for you to find all of our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. It's all at live Faith First. Even our website is LiveFaithFirst.org. So wherever you're searching for us, type in LiveFaithFirst, 1st you'll find us there. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you in a few weeks. In the meantime, live. Faith first.